All right, take your Bible and uh, some, if not most, though not all, of the texts we're going to go to are there in your notes. And uh, the reason for that is not so you don't have to engage and turn in your Bible. I certainly want you to do that. Um, But because we're going to cover such a large volume of Scripture, um, it is normally my tendency to tell you where to go and then not give you enough time to get there. So uh, you can blame me for that. I'm sorry. I'm well aware of that. Uh, But silence kills me when I'm in the pulpit. So I'm like, hurry and get there. So we're going to We're going to short circuit that problem and I've given it to you in your notes. And then also, and the real reason is I want you to have these truths in front of you. We're giving this to you to keep and we want you to hold on to it. We want you to put it on your bookshelf or something. We want you to study it throughout the week. In fact, I'll give you a kind of a challenge at the end tonight. Um, But uh, all the verses are there for the most part. We'll go to some that aren't, um, some uh, different additions that we, that have made to the notes tonight that uh, we'll look at. Um, Tonight, as I mentioned, we're going over the doctrines of the gospel. Uh, Doctrines, if you can think about it like this by way of just introduction and illustration, doctrines are like the alphabet that spell out the gospel. Uh, When you read a word, you're reading a bunch of letters that make up a word. And when you're thinking about the gospel, what you might not realize, and I assume that you do, but I I really want you to kind of think about it, what you're looking at when you think about the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, how someone passes from death to life, you're looking at a collection of non-negotiable, Uh, essential doctrines that teach us how to be saved. Uh, Doctrine is uh, crucial to the salvation of a lost soul. Someone cannot get saved apart from the doctrines of the gospel. And uh, there have been efforts, and there's nothing new under the sun, right? But there have been efforts to to oversimplify the gospel and make it into some kind of palatable pill that you can give to people so they just don't go to, they don't have to go to hell. And you've heard it, right? The one, two, three, repeat after me thing. Uh, And there are some corners of Christianity that have certainly reduced the gospel. You'll hear things uh, in, in services sometimes where they say, listen, if you're lost and on your way to hell, just commit to have a relationship with Jesus and you're saved. That is, that, that, there's no blood, there's no death, there's no doctrine, there's just make Jesus your friend and you're all good. In fact, I would say that is the prevailing t- uh, uh, way the gospel is presented in, in a lot of different churches today. Um, even in Baptist churches, we've reduced the gospel to certain things that, uh, one of the things I'm grateful to have seen kind of die off in our movement is the wordless book. Um, and I, I think you could use the wordless book if you were very, very careful. But a lot of times, you know, when I grew up, it was like, okay, you know, there's hell and there's heaven and you want to get to heaven. So you go through the red page to get to the gold page and then boom, you want to get saved. And again, if the doctrines are present, you can use something like that, but it can be oversimplified to the point that you have taken away the doctrines of the gospel. And I will say this, the gospel is simple. There is simplicity in Jesus Christ. Faith is very simple. Jesus as our substitute is very simple for sure. But the gospel is also very thorough. Okay, And that's a word we're going to talk about tonight. The gospel is nuanced. There's details that matter. You can't just skip them, right? Um, The the gospel is sincere and patient and careful. Uh, The gospel is the compilation of many doctrines that come together. Uh, Remember the illustration we used when we were talking about uh, uh, the uh, theological triage, how to to parse out? And and we said that theology is like a house of cards, right? And a lot of times that's used kind of as a pejorative term. A house of cards is something that just can't stand and it falls. But I want you to think about the gospel as a bit of a house of cards. There are doctrines that if taken out, the whole thing comes uh, tossing down. Um, And and there's so many doctrines. In fact, there's so many doctrines, we won't cover all of them tonight. And that's not because they're not essential. The, the, The vicarious substitution of Jesus is essential. The virgin birth is essential for salvation. And so there's a lot of essential doctrines that we won't necessarily go into that kind of bolster or the foundation of the gospel, right? If Jesus isn't uh, 100% man, 100% God, or fully God and fully man, he can't save us. 
Um, but that's maybe not something that you're going to go over in detail. You're not going to discuss the hypostatic union when sharing the gospel with a coworker. Now, you might, and you can. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, there's nothing wrong with being too thorough. So ignoring the doctrines of the gospel is kind of like trying to build a house without nails or screws. You can, you can get someone to pray by leaning the boards against each other, and it kind of looks like a house but it's not really been built. The doctrines of salvation are the things that hold salvation together. It's how the house of cards, as it were, stays standing. And so the doctrines of salvation matter immensely. And so we're going to dive in a little bit deep tonight. We're going to cover them. We're going to try to cover them systematically, one to the next in kind of a logical order. And we're going to examine closely what the Bible says has to happen for a lost person to become a saved person. And that's no small feat. For someone to go from dead to live, uh, for someone to go from darkness to the glorious light of the gospel, there's a lot that has to happen. And we're not going to, we're certainly not going to, what we're going to do, we're not adding, but we're making sure we, we se- separate out. We're kind of parsing out the, the tiny pieces to examine the gospel message. Uh, and an important note is that uh, uh, all that we walk through tonight doesn't necessarily make it into your gospel presentation every time. But here's what I want to say. Don't be afraid to make it into your gospel presentation. If the Lord is leading and you want to talk about, you know, the necessity of a virgin birth and you want to go through those different, man, that's so great. Here's the thing I would be afraid of. Be afraid of being too brief. Don't be afraid of being too thorough. Okay. If you caught nothing for the rest of the service, catch that. When it comes to sharing the gospel with someone, be horrified that you were too brief and not thorough enough. Um, because if someone is listening and someone, the gospel, the Holy Spirit of God is drawing someone to salvation, they're going to sit, they're going to listen. You're going to have their heart and their time. The problem becomes, well, when I got to sell the vacuum and get it in the door, I got to make sure that, okay, right here, right here, right here, right here. Okay, let's pray. Were they genuinely converted? You were so quick to go through, but you weren't thorough. And, and we want to be, again, if you're going to default to one side or the other, uh, don't be transactional, be thorough. Uh, if you were, uh, imagine, and this is a less important decision, though it's very important. If as a father, the day will come, Lord willing, if he tarries his coming, that I'm going to meet the man that's going to marry my daughter. And I'm going to sit across from that young man. And one thing I will be is thorough and scary, but thorough. I'm not going to just be like, okay, so what's your, okay, 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 yeah, marry my daughter. Now, my daughter getting married is a hugely important thing, but someone getting saved is far more important. Right, And we would never rush through that meeting to get to the end of it. We would be thorough. We want to know. Background. Give me your social. How, you know, give me all. Don't do that in soul winning, okay? Uh, but the idea is to be non-transactional, not a vacuum salesman, uh, but someone who shares the gospel with great thoroughness. Uh, so it's important. Uh, 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 forgive me. It is the impartation of saving truth uh, that uh, someone can understand, believe, and receive. So don't be scared um, about doing it per se. But do be, uh, uh, be, do be fervent about being thorough. Uh, we need to learn what the Bible teaches about the way of salvation. There are certainly a lot of myths out there. There are certainly a lot of false gospels, misrepresentations. There's a lot of perversion of the gospel message today. There are many, uh, there are many subtle iterations or representations of the gospel. And many of them, and this becomes a little problematic, many of them are brought on by really nice people, really like sincere people who genuinely believe what they believe. They're, they're nice people. They're passionate about what they believe, but they have perverted the gospel and are not saved. I'm thinking of so many different illustrations, right? You can go to this religion and that false cult and this, 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 these people deny that Jesus is even God. And they're so sincere and they're so kind and some of them will even come to your door and they'll present what they think is the gospel, but it's, it's not the gospel. And you and I need to know what the true gospel is. And the only way we can know that is to go to the scripture, Right? And, and first, or 2 Timothy 3.16, in your notes or in your Bible, tells us that the scripture was given, right? 
by inspiration of God, and it's profitable. What is it used for? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, there in your notes, I think your first blank before we pray, is that the word doctrine means what is taught and what should be believed. That's what doctrine is. Now, I don't have time to go into this kind of tangent, but uh, it's a similar word to orthodoxy. What should be believed is the word orthodoxy. Doctrine and orthodoxy are very similar. Well, the problem then becomes, or the issue then becomes, well, who gets to determine what should be taught and what should be believed? Is it the, pa- is it the pastor? Is it the Baptist? Is it the Catholics? No, it's the Bible. Because God just told us, all scripture is given by inspiration of God for doctrine. Doctrine, what should be taught and what should be believed. And so tonight, we're going to chase down real carefully, uh, real, I'm going to try to be patient and slow, because I want to make sure that we can kind of lay hold on these truths. Because if we're ever going to teach someone, whether that be at a door and a perfect stranger, or that be our mother who we've been praying for for years and God opens up an opportunity, we want to know what is it we have to teach them for them to pass from death to life. Because there's no greater thing you could ever know because there's no greater thing you could ever share. It's the great commission, right? So let's pray and we'll start learning some doctrines here tonight. Lord, bless us, guide us, be with us, Lord. May you be glorified in all that we do. And uh, Father, remove any distractions, remove any irritants in our heart, uh, remove any expectations for what you know we're doing afterwards. Lord, let us just be here And be in this moment and learn these incredibly important doctrines uh, that can bring and have brought, excuse me, have brought us from darkness to light and uh, can bring those we love and those we've never met from darkness to light as well. Let us be good students this week, especially, Lord, not just tonight, but let us reread these things this week and try to bury them in our heart, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so doctrine number one, there in your notes, you have the lost condition of humanity. It's got to start there. Um, there's no other starting point. Uh, obviously, you could, you could start at God's creation and God creating man perfect, but that you would tell that story only to get to the fact that Adam and Eve stole autonomy from God, fell into sin, and brought death with it. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that's so important. A lot of times when a person is being uh, confronted with their sin. You know, you're, you're talking to your aunt, you're talking to your neighbor, you get to this, this is the very first point in what we would call the Romans road. And you get to this idea that all have sinned and they'll say, yeah, but I'm not that bad, right? The, a lot of times they'll think, well, compared to other people, I'm, I'm really not that bad of a sinner. But did you notice what we fell short of? It didn't say we fell short of comparing to Jim across the street. It didn't say, you know, we fell short of coming, you know, comparing to the vast majority of society because you may be better than most people but the standard is perfection. The glory of God is what we fell short of. God's perfect, it would be like saying, you know, like maybe Brother Escobar could jump higher than me, right? And I can jump higher than Michael, but the standard isn't who can touch this light. The standard is you have to jump and touch the moon. Well, nobody can do that, right? No, you know, and, and when you talk to them about the gospel, they'll say, well, I'm kind of better than them and I'm not bad, I'm, I'm kind of better than them, but the standard is touch the moon. The standard is God's perfection and his glory and all have fallen short of that. So the idea is when it comes to the doctrines of salvation, the first thing man must recognize is that we are lost, that we have lost the ability to access God. Romans 5.12, wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for all have sinned. Sin is intrinsically tied to who we are now. Uh, our, our, our great, 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 great grandfather passed sin on through all of that. And we inherited a sin nature and that sin nature produced us to sin. And we are all hopelessly sinners. And the fact of the matter is someone cannot be saved until they realize they are a lost person. Because look there in your notes, Mark two seventeen, they that are whole have no need of a physician 
but they, they that are sinners, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And you know who Jesus is talking to. The Pharisees there are so full of themselves. They do not need a redeemer. They do not need a rescuer. They are the redeemer of God's people. They are the ones bringing them back into fellowship with God. And Jesus says, I'm not here for you. You are not You don't think you need a redeemer. You don't think you need saving. You don't think you need a physician. And the fact of the matter is, when we come to speak to somebody about the gospel, you cannot move on. You can't just be like, okay, yeah, okay, anyway. But point number two, you cannot move on until someone realizes, hey, my lost condition is, or my condition is that I am, I'm lost. The, the, uh, it's so incredibly important that they realize that. Now, would you go to Psalm chapter 51 in your Bible? That's not going to be in your notes, though Luke 15 is. Uh, Jesus says in Luke 15, 32, you're going to Psalm 51. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. First John 1, 8, uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive our own selves and the truth is not in us. So man must recognize his sinful condition. Now, let me say this too. This is important. And I, I, I don't know why people get bothered by this. Contrition is not a bad thing. It's a natural thing. The Holy Spirit produces in someone when they realize they're a lost person. When you realize you're guilty, it has the natural tendency to produce guilt, right? So I want you to see what God says about having a contrite heart. Uh, Psalm 51 verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. So again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They've got to recognize, man, this is who I am and this is what I've done. And that does make me guilty before God. Okay. And that's an important thing to recognize before we can move to any other doctrines. There is this doctrine of recognition that my condition before God is guilty. And then Man, we must realize, man is hopelessly unable to save himself. So it'd be one thing if, you know, we were, you know, you fell down into some dark chasm, but you had the ability to crawl out. Well, you wouldn't need a savior, right? Even if you're not in a great condition, you still have the power to redeem yourself or rescue yourself. That is not the condition when it comes to mankind. Uh, And therefore, religion can't rescue you. No man can rescue you. Man is hopelessly unable to save himself. Look at Colossians there in your notes. Colossians 2.13. And you, being dead in your sins and in uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened, that means to be made alive, together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. The only hope man has to be redeemed, which we're going to get to in a second, is that Jesus redeems him, that Jesus makes him alive, because a dead person cannot revive themselves. I've never seen a person in the morgue giving themselves CPR. It's just not how it works. Uh, no dead person can bring themselves back to life. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace... And that's that undeserved favor God gives. By grace, you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It cannot be earned by any scheme of man. And boy, are there some schemes man has made up on how to redeem yourself. Well, if you give money to the church, you can redeem yourself. No, you can't. Well, if you go to church and do good, you can redeem yourself. I was talking to my, my wife today. She's working on uh, teaching some doctrines of salvation in her Sunday school class. And she, was, she keeps going back to this idea that the penalty of sin, the payment of sin is death. It's the only thing that works. Now, this is a terrible illustration, but hear me out. It worked in my mind toward kids. I said, I don't know if kids nowadays know about bubblegum machines. Do you guys know about bubblegum machines, Ezra? You know, yeah, the only thing that works is a quarter. Okay, you can't put a bottle cap in there. The only thing that will turn that is a quarter. And when it comes to salvation, for grace to be received, the only thing that works is uh, by grace through faith. It, there, there's nothing else. The, the wage of sin is death. The only payment for your sin and mine is this idea that we must die. There must be a penalty that is paid. Uh, the person who believes they can be their own rescue has actually denied the Lord Jesus. They've denied the Holy Spirit as rightful position in their life. So man must recognize their sinful condition and their inability to reconcile themselves back to God. Titus chapter three, verse number five. 
It says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. That's God withholding something from us that we deserve. Grace is God giving us something we don't deserve. Mercy is God withholding something that we do deserve. So, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. So it's not by works of righteousness. Man is hopelessly unable to save himself. Isaiah 64, 6 there in your notes. It says, but we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousness as fil- are as filthy rags and we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So this is our side of the gospel fence, if you will. We're gonna jump to the other side of the gospel fence in a second, but on our side, and it's a mess, right? We are marred by sin. We are hopeless. We are dead. We are buried. We are incapable. There is no rescue on this side of the gospel, which is the beautiful part of the other side of the gospel. Now the gospel message and the doctrine of the gospel message switch scenes and switch subjects. First, it must recognize us. We have to realize that we were the ones who initiated the break in relationship. We were the ones who walked away from God. It wasn't like God created us and then, you know, I don't really enjoy him anymore. Kind of like we get a new thing or a new toy or a new, you know, uh, kitchen appliance. We really like it and then we just stop using it, right? All of our juicers are in a cupboard that we don't, you know, we don't use. That's not what God did to us. We chose to run. We chose to flee. We separated ourselves. Our iniquities have drawn us away from God. So this side of the fence, really, really bad. Now let's look on the other side of the fence. Let's look at the third necessary thing, um, gospel or doctrine, the necessity of a capable savior, the capable savior. So if a dead person cannot save themselves, then a dead person uh, certainly cannot save another dead person. So the idea is that like, hey, I'm a sinner. Casey, no middle name Trudell is a sinner. And Casey, no middle name Trudell cannot save Casey, no middle name Trudell. Therefore, Casey, no middle name Trudell cannot save you because I can't save myself. I can't save you. So therefore, no priest, no pope, no religious leader, no Muslim bishop or no no, uh, Mormon bishop, no human being who is a son of Adam has the ability to redeem another son of Adam because they themselves are lost and dead in trespasses and sin. So we need a capable savior, someone who actually could do it. Okay, and that we find in Romans chapter five. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. So all men of Adam's race are under this curse of sin. Even those who didn't do what Adam did, they didn't sin after the similitude of Adam. They sinned some other way and they are guilty. So again, not a single son of Adam can break the curse. If you remember, we, when we were doing studies in, in uh, Genesis, we, we, we watched this promise in the beginning of Genesis, whereby the son of a woman, the seed of a woman would come and and redeem mankind. And then what we watched is for the next few generations, every woman hoped this is the man child. You know, they thought Noah would be the one who would come and redeem mankind, but not a single one of Adam's sons could redeem us from sin. Uh, But we do have a second Adam and a capable savior in Romans 5.15. Look at the very next verse. It says, but not as the, uh, the offense, so also the free gift. For if through the offense of one, Adam, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. I love what uh, uh, Hebrews, this is not in your notes. So either write it in your notes or go with me or do both. Hebrews chapter seven is a powerful passage um, about this idea of Jesus being a capable savior. Probably the best one in scripture. There I go with a superlative. But I do, I do truly believe if we're thinking about what Jesus being a capable savior, Hebrews 7.25 is the verse we should go to. It says, wherefore, he is able also to save them, not just save them, but I love what God says, save them to the uttermost. 
to the end, to its fullness, to the furthest reaches of the universe. He is able to save them to the uttermost, uttermost that come unto God by him, Jesus, seeing he ever liveth and maketh intercession for them. So this is a beautiful reality that Jesus is a capable savior. In fact, while you're there, go to Hebrews chapter number five, uh, verse number eight. We'll start there as well. The fact of the matter is there are certain conditions that Jesus had to meet in order to be capable to save us, okay? And I know that might sound a little scary, but Jesus, outside of what he did for us in this body uh, on this earth, was not capable of saving us. He had to do certain things, and we're going to lean into that. So don't be scared of what Hebrews 5.8 says. It says, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered, and being made, what's the next word? Perfect. Perfect. And what that means is capable. That means complete. He now has the ability to redeem us. So this isn't meaning Jesus somehow became morally perfect. He was morally perfect, but he wasn't able to save us without the sacrifice he did on the cross, without the obedience of the things he suffered. He wasn't able to save us without these things. And we'll talk about what those things are in a little bit, but being made perfect, he became the author after being equipped. He became the author of eternal salvation and all them that obey him called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So listen, apart from his obedience and suffering, he lacked the ability to redeem us. And here's why. And we'll lean into this in a little bit too, but God doesn't just ignore sin. God doesn't just say, I will forgive you. He must atone for sin. There must be a payment made. There must be blood offered as a sacrifice. And that's from all the way in the beginning with Abel's sacrifice, all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, all the way into the New Testament. And so Christ being made perfect, being made capable, being now equipped after having experienced the obedience and the suffering of his physical life, now is a capable savior because of what he did for us. And that's a beautiful thing. Now, listen, there's a need for a capable savior. We're on, we're on the side of the fence of, of, of God. We talked about our side of the fence. Number four, the necessity of a sinlessly perfect sacrifice. Okay? Here's what I mean by being made perfect, right? So Jesus had to walk under the law and fulfill the law to be the Adam who didn't mess up, to fulfill the fullness of the law so that he could die in our place. First Peter 1.18. For as much as ye know that ye are not redeemed with corruptible things or things that were polluted, right? As silver and gold from your vain conversations received by the traditions of your father. But, so in contrast to being unable to be redeemed by things that are polluted, but you are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. So the beautiful thing is that Jesus, again, we talked about this, I think it was last week, Jesus pleased the Father. He did always the things that pleased the Father. He had to obey the law. Hebrews 4, I think some of these are in your notes, some of them might not be. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted under the law, like as we are, yet without sin. So the reason Jesus can die in place of a sinner is because he himself was not a sinner. If Jesus had infracted the law one time, he'd be guilty of the whole thing. If Jesus had broken the law even once, he could not be a capable savior. But because he obeyed the law, he lived his life perfectly in obedience and pleasing the father. He is a capable savior. What Adam couldn't do, Jesus did do. Adam was given the law. Hey, obey these, you know, this one thing. And he couldn't keep that. And yet Jesus kept all of the law and died in our place. Romans 5.10. For if we, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his, it doesn't say death, it says life. 
Death is necessary. We'll get to that in a second. I'm certainly not. It's just not emphasizing his death. It's emphasizing his perfection. It's emphasizing the fact that he fulfilled all the righteous commands and expectations of the Father. Now, unfortunately, there are some, I hope there are not many, but I, 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 I shudder to even consider, but there are false preachers out there peddling lies that Jesus wasn't perfect, that he was sin, sinful. I've heard a preacher say that Jesus had to repent of the sin of racism. That guy's not a preacher. That guy's a heretic. That guy is lost. That guy is not saved. Don't listen to that guy. The fact of the matter is, if Jesus is a sinner, then we're all dead in trespasses and sin. And we're waiting for another Adam to do it because if the first one obviously didn't do it, if the second Adam didn't do it, then we are still on our way to hell. He died for his own sin and not for our sins. But that's obviously not true. So man needs a capable savior. Man needs a spotless lamb and a, a sinless sacrifice. Uh, let's get into some, some more nuanced along that. What, is, what had to be offered for our salvation? Um, we talked about the fulfillment of the law. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, that's, that's there in your notes. I'm gonna give you some verses. I think they are there in your notes too. Matthew 5, 17, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, but I am, com- I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. We talked about that. The law had to be fulfilled. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent his son made of woman, made under the law to redeem them that are under the law that we might have, we might receive the adoption of sons. So that fulfillment of the law. Number two, in order that sacrifice needed blood. That's in your notes. Blood. Hebrews 9.22. Almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood is no remission No remission of sins, as we would understand it. He's talking about the fact that throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, there was this picture that blood had to be shed. Blood had to be poured. You go to the book of Hebrews, and I really, I rejoice with with those of you who are in my class. You know exactly what I'm talking about. We walk verse by verse through that book. And that blood, that sacrifice, the lambs, it couldn't take away sin. But Jesus was the perfect. And then he sat down once and for all, having made sacrifice and created a new and living way into us. And blood was required because that's the economy God chose. Back Way back with Abel's first sacrifice, God said, I'm picking blood. Way back even before that, when Adam and Eve sinned, God slew an animal and covered them with skins because covering comes through blood, not through the works of of, of man's efforts. Notice next, this one goes without saying, but death is required. Death is required. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If blood were enough, they would have just bled the lambs for sacrifice, but instead... They, they slaughtered them. And then oftentimes, especially in the, the day of atonement, they would burn that body without. It was a complete, all-consuming sacrifice. So it not only required the blood of Jesus, his perfect life, it required his death as well. First Peter 3, 18, I think is there in your notes as well. Uh, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Now, this is important. What you're noticing is what we would consider the hypostatic union. Fully man, but fully God. As fully man being put to death in the flesh, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. In order to redeem those who were under the law, he had to come under the law. In order to redeem mankind, he had to become man. But at the same time, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, fully man and fully God, came under the law, gave his, his perfect life, uh, sinless in every way, shed his blood, yielded up the ghost to his father. That's what had to be offered. So man must, first off, recognize our sinful condition. Number two, man must realize they're hopeless to redeem themselves. Number three, the necessity of a capable savior. 
Number four, the necessity of a perfect sacrifice. And number five, the substitutionary, and the word missing is offer. Offer to appease God's wrath. So we don't believe the Bible teaches irresistible grace. Okay, Irresistible grace is the idea that, well, God you know, chose you to get saved, and whether you want to or not, he's going to drag you kicking and screaming, you're going to get saved. And that is paired with the, what I would consider a rank heresy, of limited atonement. Limited atonement says Jesus only shed his blood for Bo, but not for Vicky. And so Bo is going to get saved whether he wants it or not. Vicky, you're damned to hell. You don't get a choice. Uh, you're, you know, I'm going to get glory out of burning you in hell, but I'm going to get glory out of you getting saved even though you had no choice in the matter. Those are not doctrines of the Bible. Uh, they're certainly not taught in Scripture. Um, but what is taught in Scripture is that the substitutionary sacrifice is an offer to all mankind. This is the only way we reconcile verses about God's desire that all men would be saved because he is offering to anyone whosoever, let him come and take of the water of life freely. Uh, And again, this goes back to the idea. It's an offer because God doesn't just ignore sin. He's bound by his holy word to require a payment to be uh, made and the wages must be settled. The debt must be uh, 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 reconciled in order for sin to be forgiven. And so what did God do? He offered a trade. We we saw that last week with Isaiah 53, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus took our place as a substitutionary sacrifice. This was, and I want to say this just kind of sidebar, and I, I, I hit this probably every year and I think we need to. The death on the cross was not Jesus somehow buying us back from Satan. Um, it had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with satisfying God's wrath on sin. And when it was finished, that exchange was made with God the Father and God the Son, not with Satan. Um, if you could think about it this way, there's certainly verses that talk about buying, redeeming us back from death. And death in those passages is oftentimes personified as though it is this captivity, but he also personified, though it's not necessarily a person. He's redeeming us from our grave, from our punishment, from sin. But what he exchanged was the wrath of the father on his sacrifice on himself. So Jesus was on that cross to satisfy the wrath of of his father. Uh, But remember what I said, this offer is, this substitutionary, him in our place, is an offer. God paid for the sins of all mankind in the death of Jesus. And that's 1 John 2, 2. I think that's in your notes. He is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only. Now, who's our? Well, we would definitely say the elect, the ones who are saved, the ones, the ecclesia, but not just for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. He paid, there's no limit to his atonement. He atoned for all of mankind's sin and he makes an offer. He throws out the lifeline to all humanity, but man must be willing to be saved. First Timothy 2, 3, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our savior. What is good and what, what, what pleases our father? What is good and acceptable? Who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of truth. Second Peter 3, 9, God is not willing that any should perish. So what's happening? If the desire of God, if the will of God, if the plan of God is to save all mankind, why isn't all of mankind saved? Here's the collision that happens. The the plan of God and the will of man oftentimes come into this collision where man wants something God doesn't want. God doesn't want a single person to go to hell, but in his sovereignty, he knows who will go to hell. God's not designing man to go to hell. God's will is that all would come to repentance, that all would hear the gospel, that all would receive the offer. He died for all of the sins of mankind. He's throwing out the lifeline to all, but man must make a choice. 
God has given us the ability to love him. God has given us the ability to respond to the gospel, to respond to that light that has been illuminating our heart. You think about Paul, right? It's, it's not easy for you to kick against the pricks. What are the pricks? That's the Holy Spirit saying, Paul, Paul, Saul, come to me. Saul, come to me. And I remember that before I was saved. I think most of us in the room could, could testify to that, that, hey, we were living in our sin, but the Spirit of God just kept doing something in us. And I believe God's doing something in our neighbors and the people that were going to knock on the doors in Arvin and Zambia. I'm praying that God's already doing something in their heart because if they respond to light, man, God will give them more light, more light, more light. And that's just how the gospel works. God allows man to choose for himself whether or not he will be saved. So number one, man must recognize his sinful condition. Number two, man is hopeless to redeem himself. Number three, there must be a capable savior. There must be a perfect sacrifice. Number four, number five, there's a substitutionary offer of God for man to be saved. Now we get to number six. And this one we're going to get a little nuanced in, which is good. What is the method of salvation? So we started off on our side of the fence. Hey, we're sinners. We're incapable of redeeming ourselves. We're on our way to receive a wrathful, righteous punishment in hell. We jumped to the other side of the fence, God's side of the equation. And we saw that he's capable and that he is perfect and obeyed in every way. He made a sacrifice and offers this substitutionary payment on our, on our behalf. Now we jump back on our side of the fence. How then is a man brought from death to life? What needs to happen? Well, all the stuff we just talked about are the doctrines. But now what must man do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Well, how does a sinner pass from death to life upon hearing the gospel? Number one, this is not in your notes. And I apologize. I want you to write number one in above number one. They have to understand the gospel. Okay? That's not in your notes. I was, I was just finalizing my notes tonight. And I thought, man, that one absolutely needs to be in there. And uh, the reason it wasn't in there is because we're actually going to spend a lot of time. I told you, think next week. We're going to look at our responsibility. Well, we have a huge responsibility when it comes to that. We have nearly no responsibility when it comes to their faith. We have a huge responsibility when it comes to their understanding, okay? So we'll talk about that next week. Just put it in your notes, if you will. I do believe number one should be understanding. Number, number one in your notes, which would be number two, but we're just going to start the numbering system over, is belief. On a super basic level, belief means to accept as true. Um, and there's a couple of ways this word is used in a, in a few different areas, a few different texts of scripture, and we're going to see some of those tonight. Um, Romans 4, I think it's in your notes. For what saith the scripture? Adam believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Mark 6, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. I mean, that's pretty clear. John 3, 16, one of the best verses. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3, 36, he that believeth on the son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not on the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So this huge delineating reality is not works, it's belief. But let me ask you a semi-scary question, but I don't want you to freak out just yet. There, there's, a, there's a reason. Is belief enough to save us? So before I answer the question, I think it's in your notes, James 2.19. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. So the devils believe and we believe. We know for sure the devils cannot be redeemed. So, so what's going on here? 
Well, this is where the original languages really do help us out. In fact, the word in James is a different word used than the previous words that we already saw. They're they're similar root words. They're in the same family. But in James chapter number two, in verse 19, when it says the devils believe and tremble, here's what the word believe means. It means to accept as true. So does Satan himself accept that Jesus is the son of God? Certainly. He knows that better than you know that. All right, we've never seen Jesus and we believe he knows that better than you. He accepts that as fact. Does he accept that the sovereign God of the universe has the righteous ability to judge all mankind and all of living creation? Yes, the living and the dead. He believes that. He accepts that as true. While the words in 3 John or John 3, Mark 16 and Romans are different, a different form of belief. Let me read for you exactly what the dictionary said. It means to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance to believe in, to have confidence in, to have faith in, to trust, faith or trust is what this dictionary says. So uh, number one, that that brings us to a more parsed out view of what belief is. So number one, belief is, is necessary, but then accepting the offer of grace through faith. This is where belief becomes action. So again, it's a tired illustration. Maybe you've, you've probably heard it. Maybe you haven't, but the chair, right? The chair, I believe that chair will hold me. I have very little belief or very little doubt that it will. I believe it will. But faith is when I actually accept its credibility and sit in it, okay? So Satan says, yeah, Jesus is God, but there's no faith involved. So belief in terms of James is not sufficient to save, but belief in the other, John 3, 16, that is sufficient to save because it has attached to it this reality of faith. Now for tonight's study, we just separated them to belief and faith, though they are in most instances used in the same way and in one word. But Ephesians 2, 8 says, for by grace are you saved through faith. That's the vehicle you get into to get to your destination. You don't deserve the vehicle. It's grace that it came to take you. Faith is getting in the vehicle that brings you to salvation and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And one of my, my absolute favorite passages is uh, Romans 3.25. I use this in my soul winning uh, nearly every time. For whom God, uh, rather, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare the righteousness for the remissions of sin that are passed through the forbearance of God. So in his death, His blood brought us the opportunity to, as we've seen so many times as illustrated, switch seats, allow him to take our penalty. And so we cry out in acceptance, right? Um, This faith now becomes reality when by faith we call out to God, we reach out to God, we we realize, man, I'm a sinner and I need him. And then we get to these famous verses of Romans 10.10. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, right? With the mouth confession is made known unto salvation. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, before we go too far into that, there's some confusion that exists and and rightfully so. And how, what is the prayer about? And where is, what's confessing with your mouth look like? And do they have to pray out loud? Do they pray with their mouths? Do they have to pray at all? And uh, we'll get into that in a a couple of weeks from now. We'll we'll lean into the sinner's prayer. We'll spend a whole time on that. Um, But I believe, and I think the scripture teaches clearly, That salvation happens when a sinner turns their heart toward God and begins their cry of of salvation. I think the words naturally flow out of a heart that says, Lord, this is who I am. This is is what I, I need you to save me. And that can be summed up in the third word, repentance. Okay, this is where a believer turns toward God and says, ah, please save me. 
That is where salvation happens. Now, faith and repentance are two sides to the exact same coin. Um, and, and I'll illustrate that a little bit more. But I believe a person is saved at the moment of repentance. It's an important word. It's a biblical word. I know it makes some people squirm, and that's okay. You'll find it in the Bible. You'll find it as the sum total of John the Baptist's entire ministry message. You'll find it as many cases, Jesus himself teaching it. So let me give you a few examples, and then I'll talk about what it is and what it isn't. But Luke chapter 5, verse 32 says this. Jesus speaking, I came not to call righteous the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Acts 3.19, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. So it's a biblical word. And that's a word that can be twisted to mean all kinds of things that it doesn't mean. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on that, but the word repent means this, to turn from and to turn toward. But this is the important thing. Would you please go to Acts chapter 20, verse 21. Is it in your notes? Okay, okay. If you want to go and mark this in your Bible, I think this is important. This is the fundamental reality we must grasp, is it's repentance in faith toward God, okay? Repentance toward God is what the Bible says. This is the same side, opposite sides of the same coin. Acts chapter 20, verse 21. Testifying both to the Jew and also to the Greeks. Notice what he says. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So repentance toward is the important aspect of repentance. And a lot of people, they, they, they place a huge emphasis on repentance from. Well, you know, if you go back and you got you to gotta, you know, enumerate this and enumerate this and enumerate this and confess all these sins and realize, man, if I miss a single sin, then I'm on my way to hell. No, no, no. That's, that's an emphasis on the wrong side of the equation. The, what the Bible says is repentance toward God. I'll give you an illustration. Uh, biblical, uh, repentance is a biblical mandate, but let me illustrate you what repentance looks like, how it pairs with faith. Uh, I've used the illustration before of a burning building, right? The building is on fire. You're standing on the outside of the building. The firefighters are down there with their giant nets. They're yelling jump. Your house is furnished. The, the cupboards are full of sin. The walls are stained by mistakes, but it's yours, right? And the firefighters show up. They spread the net and they say, let go. We will catch you. We're not here to condemn you. We're here to rescue you. And standing on the side of that wall, we can look down and say, I think they could do it. They probably could catch me. The net looks pretty big. Those guys are pretty strong. But until we actually, that's faith and repentance toward God. That says, Lord, <laughs> everything I am is not enough. My unbelief and my sin and my, the crimes against you. Repentance is not, okay, I'll jump in a minute. Let me go in and clean the cupboards. Okay, I'm ready. That's not repentance. Repentance toward God is, oh man, Lord. Yep. I am not enough. I am a sinner. I'm guilty. If I stay here, I'm going to hell. I'm going to hell with all my stuff. But Lord, not only do I believe, but I have faith. And I don't know how that looks in every single person. Well, again, like I said, we'll talk about when they pray and how they pray. I don't know how, I don't know where the, the marker is, but I know this. When a sinner repents toward God in faith, says, Lord, you are my redeemer. I need you. That's where salvation happens. That happened when they say, in Jesus' name, amen. I, I don't think so. I think that's, that there's, there's a necessary, uh, necessary part of that that we'll lean into in another, in another time. So doctrines of salvation, man must recognize his sinful condition. Man is hopeless to redeem himself. Number three, there must be a capable and sinless saver, a savior. There must be a perfect savior, number four. There must be a substitutionary offer that is accepted. The method of salvation is belief, uh, rather understanding, belief, acceptance, and repentance. Let me give you, just as we go, two everyday applications. So this is about everyday uh, evangelism. Number one 
Here's my challenge to you. Love lost people enough to learn these truths. Okay? You cannot teach what you do not know. Right? This is why we're starting here tonight. We could start on tactics, and we're really not going to even give you any tactics. We're not going to give you any hacks on how to, how to draw the net and, you know, set the hook and get them in the boat. We're not going to do any of that. We're, we're going to trust that the Holy Spirit's going to do his job while we just do our job. I'm going to teach you what your job is. Um, but we are trying to teach you what the doctrines of the gospel are because you can't, do, you can't teach if you do not understand it. So here's my challenge to you. This is kind of the application. Love lost people enough to try to learn. So how would you do that practically speaking? Well, read through your notes every day this week. Spend some time reading through what the scripture says. Take some time and try to understand. Try to understand that for yourself, not just to regurgitate. And in years past, we've given you a script and stuff like that. We're not going to do that any, uh, this year. What I hope for you to do is try to hide these words in your heart. Know what they say. Learn them yourselves so that you can teach them. When someone has the question and says, yeah, but my, my, I go to church and therefore my sins are forgiven. We talked about that. Okay, well, no, 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 man can't save himself. Okay, let me go to the verses in here. Okay, hey, let me talk to you about this. And again, it's not a hard thing. One of the best study tools they gave me in college, one of my professors told me to do this. He said, you don't need to spend 10 hours a day studying and cramming for a test. He said, just every day, read through your notes. Just every day, read through your notes. Read through your notes. Don't, don't, don't like try to hard, hardcore memorize them, maybe. Just read through them. And after 25 days, you'll have a pretty good understanding of what you're reading. So it can be done. There is no excuse for ignorance, especially when it comes to the gospel. And the fact of the matter is, if you're saved, you understood the gospel at one point. Maybe not well enough to teach it, but you can now and should now. And what we've given you is hopefully a tool to be able to go back and study. Number two, so number one, everyday application, love the lost around you enough to learn them. Number two, love the lost enough to share them. Okay? You have the ability within you not to save a single person. Brother Escobar, I've never saved a single person. Uh, I've not, but I, I've uh, been allowed to be used to bring truth and light to someone's life whereby they could be saved, right? And what a privilege to do that. You have this amazing light inside of you, and you are that city set on a hill. You are that light that shouldn't be put under a bushel. And if we would love the lost enough, that perfect love casts out fear, that we would look for someone to help, someone to rescue. Uh, and again, we're not rescuing them. We're just saying, hey, Jesus is ready for you. Jump. Jesus is capable. He's sinless. He paid for your sin. You're going to die up there. Just jump. Trust him. Don't just believe that he is because there's a lot of, you, you talk to nearly every, every Protestant or even Catholic believer. They all believe Jesus can save them, but they also need the Pope and they also need their good works. They also need this. No, no, no. Let go of it all and fall into his grace, right? So love the lost people enough to bring them the gospel. And here's your homework. Every week, you're going to get homework. I know some of you don't want homework, but here, I actually think if you, you buy into this, I think it'd be a great thing for you. Um, we talked about it with the staff and thought, what could we do? Could we have them write out the verses? What we're going to do for you this week, and what I'm going to try to do with my family, and it's a great opportunity, men, for you to lead your home, so, so, so buy in on this. Your homework for this week is to write out your salvation testimony, okay? And share it with your family. Every mom, every dad, every kid, begin to type it out or write it out. And then at some point later in the week, sit down with the family and say, okay, hey, uh, you know what? I'm going first. I want to share with you my salvation testimony. And maybe you don't have to write it out. Maybe you know it well enough. You could share it. Um, I think it'd be a blessing to have it written out. Your kids could hold on to that. And maybe someday at your funeral, God forbid, but we're all going to die someday. They could read that salvation testimony. And uh, I think it'd be a huge exercise and a great kind of 
community building for your family. So that's your homework for this week. We got other homework coming up in the weeks ahead, but this week's homework is write out your salvation testimony and share it with your family. And maybe pick a different person each night. Um, For those of you that have like 36 people in your family, maybe four each night, that would work. Um, We've got six, so we just start tomorrow. We'll be done on Saturday. So um, let's go ahead and pray 